Hey, you up all night tossing, turning, mind racing, trouble getting to sleep, trouble falling asleep. Well, welcome. I believe you're in the right place. My name's Scooter. I'm here to help you fall asleep. This is a Sleep With Me podcast, the podcast that puts you to sleep. Tonight, we're proud to present Game of Drones, our little Game of Drones, Game of Thrones theme podcast. Probably not the best to say podcast choice in two sentences, but uh, I did it. But where we uh, talk about Game of Thrones episodes in in uh, in a way that will help you fall asleep. And what do you, what do you mean? What's this guy talking about? What what is he going on about? What what what? Okay, so this is a podcast that puts you to sleep. The way it works is all you need to do is get in bed, turn out the lights, and press play. We're gonna do the rest. What if? That's what I was just saying before. The rest is I'm going to distract you for whatever's racing through your brain. You got racing thoughts. You got angry thoughts. You got uh, forlorn thoughts. You know, they don't get a lot of uh, press, the forlorn thoughts or whatever synonyms for forlorn. But any of those thoughts, I'm going to distract you from that. Tonight, I'm going to, you know, do a game of drones. So I'm just going to talk about the Game of Thrones episode. Then I'm going to talk about stuff in the episode like... Well, mustaches, why does that, you know, when do they, when did the mustache do this or that? Now, that's not really what I'm going to talk about. It's just an example. And then maybe I'll even talk, well, why do I need to put an example in the intro? So I'm going to keep going on little twists and turns like that that are incredibly uh, uninteresting. But but they're just interesting enough. You're like, well, I do. My dad had a mustache. So maybe I'll listen to this for a minute. But then the smarter party is going to be like, all right, well, we're going to check out. You listen to that mustache guy because, you you know, that'll distract you from whatever you're worrying about. But we're going to go to sleep. You keep listening. Next thing you know, you're going to be asleep. I'm still going to be talking about mustaches and, you know, Vinny the mustache master or something crazy. But you'll be asleep in bed. You'll wake up for work tomorrow or life tomorrow. And hopefully you'll be a little more refreshed. That's a goal of the podcast. Create a safe place where you can set aside your worries and just listen to me like a a friend who's just here to talk and chit-chat. But you really don't want to listen to me. But I don't really care if you listen to me. I'm actually tickled pink to to just be there while you doze off. And believe me, I'm not going to do anything weird either because it's a podcast. I'm not your neighbor. So I can't. Uh, you know, problem solved. So let's say we're on the web, www.sleepwithmepodcast.com. Game of Drones episodes, as the general likes to hear. www.sleepwithmepodcast.com slash drones. And uh, you can get us, you can email me, dearestscooter at, feedbooth, at feedbackwithmepodcast, feedback at sleepwithmepodcast.com, or dearestscooter at sleepwithmepodcast.com. Whatever email you remember, email it. You can get us on Twitter. That's where I post sleep-related articles. We're on Facebook. That's where the bloopers are. And I'm I'm glad you're here. I hope I help you fall asleep. I don't know when you're going to be hearing. I mean, I don't know what order you'll be hearing the episodes, but we're back up with the latest uh, exact same equipment we had before but new. So that's good. And a lot of you so kindly said, oh, yeah, we heard you had some technical meltdowns. Was that code word for something? No, it was actual technical meltdown. Uh, and then B, uh, can we help you out? Can we donate some money or, you know, do a letter writing campaign 
to somebody to send you some stuff. I said, no, no, no. But if you do want to help the podcast out, you can join in with our one listener initiative, which is just a you know a phrase I made up. But basically, and this is a, this I'm going to get all like a, a, what do you call it? Like a fun drive, even though it's not funds. Join the one listener initiative for just one percent of you, one percent of you that are listening to my voice right now. Take the time to listen to your neighbors, listen to people online wherever you hang out. Or your co maybe maybe not your coworkers depending on how cool your workplace is, but your coworkers, other humans, whatever whatever you're running into, uh, artificial intelligence. We probably don't want it. They can just shut down. But anybody you hear them say, "Hey, can't sleep." Say, "Hey, I listen to this podcast. It's a little bit out of the ordinary." I'm not going to lie to you. The guy is an interesting fellow. And by interesting, I mean I, you could go either way. He could be a menace to society or he could be uh, a menace just to himself and his, his own social ineptitude. But either way, it helps me sleep, so why don't you give it a try? If just 1% of you do that tomorrow, just one tiny percent of you, I don't know what they do. Usually there's an 800 number in there. Uh, just tell somebody about the podcast We'll be fine. The podcast will keep growing uh, one listener at a time. That's what we want. One person that, uh, you know, this podcast helps sleep. That's all we got to do here. And that's it. The rest will take care of itself. I hope. I mean, it was part of this the growth, uh, what do you call it, growing opportunity for me. Let's just trust, you know, we'll, get, we'll help people fall asleep. The rest will work out just fine. All right. I'm glad you're here. And I hope I help you fall asleep. I, clearly. That's what I'm trying to do. Hopefully you're already asleep. You're like, oh, wait, I heard mustache. last thing I remember, honey, is he was talking about mustaches. I had a dream about caterpillars, a wonderful dream that caterpillars lived on my face. But they also, you know, cleaned my face. And they were, you know, honey, they didn't replace you. But they were like my best friends. They were the nicest caterpillars, kind of like that one caterpillar. I think that was best friends with Big Bird. I forgot his name. It was great. So that podcast, you know, we can. I don't hate it. So thanks a lot. And, uh, you know, I'll talk to you in about five seconds from now. Hey, hey gods, it's me, uh, Crone, Sweet Crone, Miller Smith, Barky, Jester. I'm a prayer, prayer, gratitude in on a gratitudinal line, which is like, kind of like a perpendicular line. Or longitude, gratitudinal, I like how that sounds. Crossing over, intersecting with your god godheads. I never understood what a godhead was, to be honest with you, gods. Because I know it's different than your head. But some sort of symbolism. But anyway, we're got gratitudinal line here, shooting up. Out of Westeros in the world at large, uh, in thankfulness for Chris Posty Posterson, who does our music, Sir Scotty, and his uh, lovely lady Jennifer, who handle our, our icon and iconogra- iconography, the non, um, you know, bad, you know, the kind that's good and not uh, idolatry stuff. Damon D on the back of Glittering Sandy on the research, the Lord. And the lady, uh, 
Lord, you know, ruling over us with a iron fist of of uh, gratitude, you know, harsh gratitude, so harsh and loving. And, uh, you know, and just in case the fist gets too tight, we have the defenestrator ready to toss him out of a window, you know, Prosky Castle style. Oh, 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 I'm so thankful for my forgetfulness, but, you know, I'm also thankful for the silver tone, the funders from down under. I'm thankful for some listeners that haven't reached out. Ota, like Yoda, he, Oda says, who's friends with Technoc. Emma, who left a comment on the website. Jeff H., he had an epic, epic dance photo he put on Facebook and a story. Uh, Bonnie Faye, Richard and Vanessa, also, you know, listeners on Facebook saying hi. Tisha had a Rubik's Cube story for the ages. Uh, C minus and Lizzie, two, two new Facebook users who, uh, no, no, Twitter users who said hi. Thank you so much. Andrea Haley, Samantha, continuing to have fun with us on Twitter. Turns out, gods, that dance class is like a universal thing. So, uh, I want to thank everybody that reached out to me about dance class. I also want to thank a bunch of people for their, uh, iTunes review start you know lulls they're saying lulls uh, no one's saying that since Sydney but uh that's my new thing uh, I want to thank King O'Frock 311 for saying we're fantastic King O'Frock I want to thank Lori H who says listen and sleep uh interesting she calls us calming funny creative and uh you know help helping her sleep boring as heck Boring as heck, capitalized. No, no, cat. What is an exclamation point? That's from Ficken Stevo. FKN. FKN Visto. Vistio. Ficken Vistio. He said he went through a lot of boring podcasts, hoping they would put him to sleep until he found this one. Uh, Brit. Britain. Brit. Brit. Aunt J, Brit Aunt J, says TBH to be hugged. Maybe I don't know. And she, uh, the, he or she says that I love you. Thank you, Britain H, Britain J, TBH, and then KB KPB loves Starbucks. KPB loves Starbucks. Not a not a product placement, but uh, says this actually works. And, and I know it's a common theme. Some people are like, what the heck is this? And I know there's people out there, you know, that fake in their iTunes reviews some, from time to time or faking. But, you know, you see, you're like, is this restaurant any good? And then you're like, oh, boy, or hotels. That's the worst. So I appreciate everyone that gives me these genuine reviews because then the people that are skeptical say, is these reviews for real? And when they reveal, read your reviews and they sound wacky, I think that helps. Uh, let me just read this, though. It says, uh, I've been struggling to sleep problems for a long time, resorted to a number of different podcasts, meditation, ambient noise, and as crazy as Sleep With Me podcast sounds, I tried it because I had nothing to lose. Favorite episodes are Flatbed Recipe and Mall Walkers, guaranteed to knock out 15 to 20 minutes. That's good because I give away money at 30 minutes. Just kidding. So that's it, guys. Thank you. Uh, you know, for uh, the intersection of your godheads.
and our gratitudinal line uh, and, and all your, you know, praise in your names. Goodbye. All right, everybody. So we're talking about season two, episode 10. Another season comes to a close. And, uh, you know, it's called uh, Valar, Valar, Valar Magulis. Valar Magulis, Valar Magulis. I don't know. I wish I was hanging with Jacquin, Jacquin. Valar, Valar Magulis. Say it, say it again, he says. Well, that's later. But so, yeah, we're talking a great episode. A lot of uh, ends being loosened, I guess. So it opens with Tyrion waking up. And his eye, it's like a flame from, I think, the past episode. And then it fades or, or, or transitions into the current episode with Pycelle looking down at him. And he says, you know, I got some news. Your father saved the day. He goes, these are your new chambers or something. You know, a little cramped, but, you know, you're, you're the right size for it. Something degrading like that. Oh, you don't need much room, do you? And he's like, blah, blah, blah. And then Pycelle's like, oh, I finally get a little vengeance on you. And he says, you know, you're down to size now, buddy. Here's a coin for your troubles. He tips him. It's sort of payback. And then there's a, a shot of a horse going to the bathroom. And then Tywin's on the horse in the royal court. And then Joff's like, I declare my grandfather Tywin, savior of the city, hand of the king. Calls up Baelish. Baelish has got a good, good, he says, Baelish, you when uh, brought in the Tyrell army. Laura, yeah, Laura's on her side. You get, uh, what do you call it, Heron Hall. There's some murmurings in the crowd there, which I thought was interesting. And he said, you know, for you and your sons and grand, your royalty now and your sons and your grandsons. And Baelish says, oh, we'll have to acquire some sons and grandsons, uh, Babadoo. And then uh, Joss like, Loris, you really kicked some ass. Came through for us. What can we do for you? He's like, what do you think about this plunging neckline on my stunningly gorgeous sister? What do you say about marrying her? Also, we got a huge army. We're, you know, the supplier of all the grain. And you owe me one. What do you say we join houses? And Joss like, well, you whoa, boy, that is... He goes, please to meet you. She Marjorie says, well, tales of your courage have taken root deep inside me. And he says, well, I heard tales of your beauty. They don't do you justice. And he says, you know what? I'm promised to another. And Cersei uses the most, she says, uh, let's just set Sansa Stark aside. And then they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we found this technicality. You can ditch Sansa. And Josh says, well, the gods are good. I'm free to. I'm free to heed my, heed my heart. And then there's a shot of Sansa walking away, and she laughs to herself. A great, great, great little shot there. And but we don't even have time enough to enjoy it because Baelish pops in there, and he's like, you know, I'd like to hear, where do you, she's like, I'm out of here. And he's like, oh, no, no, Joff's not the kind of boy that, uh, you know, lets go of his toys. And he's, you know, Baelish is like, well, you know, I'll help you get home. She's like, King's Landing's my home. And Baelish says, we're all liars here, and all of us are better liars than you. Then we get a shot of uh, Roz and Varys, and we get the sense that Varys is on the warpath against Baelish. And he's like, I protect those who work for me, not like that scumbag. And then Roz says, I'm afraid of him. Varys is like, you should be, but, you know, I know everyone's weakness. Don't you worry. 
Then we have Jamie and, and uh, uh, Brienne. He's like, you know, you, 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 are you still a virgin? And he's being mean to her. And then they run into these three jerks and they mess with Brienne. And then they recognize Jamie and then Brienne takes them out and, uh, you know, shows Jamie what a badass she is. And then we have uh, Mom, Cat trying to talk down Rob. She says, you know, don't cross Walter Frey, especially not for love. And she goes, I know this doesn't seem important, but your father didn't love me. He learned to love me. Believe me, I made him learn to love me. Or something about growing, I don't know, some some other metaphor. And Rob's just a little, he's still pulling the Stark thing from the first season. He's like, oh, I'm not going to, I'm rebelling against my mommy. And she's like, you know, being an adult isn't as exciting as your secret passion in the woods. Now, just an aside here, I know Rob's all Mr., uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, honor. But it's like, uh, why can't you, I mean, Talissa seems like a little bit of an upper-class lady with some standards, but at the same time, uh, couldn't they have found some comprom- non-marriage compromise? Or is Rob, uh, no offense, I'm uh, just not the biggest Rob fan anyways, like, are you that much of a square that... You're like, well, he already slept with her, so it's not like he's like waiting till saving himself for marriage. And I think they took Rob and Tyrion, uh, Theon took John to a. I don't know. Anyway, just, I don't know. So sometimes I get a little stark, stark anger. Not John. John Snow's cool. Brand Brand's pretty cool. Sansa, Arya. I, I don't know. And then we roll in with Stannis throwing a fit with the Red Woman. He's like, you know, where the hell is your god? You screwed me over. I was supposed to win. She's like, well, you maybe, maybe you're going to still win. Maybe this is like some setback for a comeback type situation. It was a setback, a setup for a comeback or something like that. And he's like, oh, no, no. Well, you know, your god better save you. And she's like, well, my god's inside you. I thought that was, I was like, oh, boy. But then she even gets deeper. She says, uh, you're going to betray everything you love for the, for this God, everything you hold dear. And she's like, because you're like the Lord of light or something. And he's like, you, you promise these things, but you don't know. And then she says, look into the fire. And there's a shot of Stannis looking at the fire. And it's really cool because we don't see what he sees, but clearly he sees something. And we have another classic scene with uh, Theon. And the uh, maester to Lewin, Lewin or whatever, and uh, they, there's this guy outside blowing the horn from uh, Roose Bolton's kid's army, uh, presumably. And it's really irritating, and it punctuates that scene so good because uh, every time Theon's trying to think straight, the horn blows. It's like a horn that this guy's blowing this horn all night to drive Theon nuts, and it's working. And he's like, you know, the guy, uh, Maester's just like, you know, they want you to know you're surrounded. He goes, thank you, bald man. And it's like, hey, buddy, you're in a bit of trouble. Don't take it out on this guy. And then Theon has this moment. He's like, the first time I saw Winterfall, it looked like it had stood for a thousand years. I was going to stand for a thousand more. But he goes, I know our rebellion didn't stand a chance against any lord that lived here. And then he gets sad again. He says, you know what, it's, you know, these guys, we, we treated you so good. That's what the maester says. He's like, well, I was your prisoner. He goes, you know what it's like to be someone's prisoner? And they say, hey, you should be thanking us for treating you so good. And he goes, and then you go home to your father. And then right as he's about to make his point, I think the horn blows again. 
And he's like, ah, and the maester's like, listen, man, just run, go to the Night's Watch, join the Night's Watch, you'll be fine. But at the end, can't do it. And he, and he, he says, listen, I've known you for many years, Theon Greyjoy. You're not the man you pretend to be. And Theon's like, not yet. And then we have Theon's speech, and that's punctuated by him. It's beautiful speech. He gets double-crossed. Then we have uh, T- Tyrion meeting with Varys and Podrick, and uh, he says, "You know, Sir, Sir, Ma- you know, why should I believe you?" Tyrion says, and he's, "Well, Sir Mar- Mandrian or whatever tried to take you out on your sister's orders, but you know, I'm take care of your people. I'm, a, you know, I like you." And he says, I fr- "I'm afraid we won't be seeing each other for some time." And Tyrion's like, "I thought we were friends." He says, we are, and then he's like, this is how much friends we are. I brought your girlfriend, Shay, here with me. And he's like, we're not going to forget that you were the one, some of us won't forget that you were the one that protected the city, not Joff. You, you, you saved us. And then we have a nice moment with Shay and Tyrion, and she looks at his face, and he's like, and she's like, oh, he's complaining. And she's like, oh, I'm a poor little rich boy. And then we have a loving, nice loving moment between the two of them. And she's like, let's get out of here and leave these bad people. He goes, this ba- these bad people, this is what I'm good at, out-talking them, out-thinking them. I, I love this Game of Thrones stuff. I, I don't want to leave. And then we have Rob and Talissa. They have a little forest marriage action. And then we're at the, the next scene is a wizard's tower with uh, Jorah and Khaleesi and the other guy. And there's no door. This is like classic, uh, du- you know, Dungeons and Dragon or Dragonlance books that I read. And they're walking around the tower trying to find a way. And Khaleesi disappears. Next thing you know, she's Jorah's like screaming for her. She's in the tower, but she's not afraid. She's like, "What are you guys afraid of? A little girl? You're gonna try to frighten me with your little tricks?" And then we have Arya and the boys are on the road. Jackin's waiting up there. And he says, "Hold on, let, let me let me chat." She's like, "What are you What are you doing, dude? You watching us?" He was like, "Well, I want to chat with you real quick." And she's like, "Well, how did this is one of my like, small but wonderful killer exchange?" She says, "How did you know we we're going to come this way?" He says, "After all the things you have seen, that is your question. Like, I'm a, I'm, I'm a total." assassin master and you're asking me how I knew which way you were going to come when there's like two roads out of town and he says why don't you come to Bravos?" she's like oh my dancing master's from Bravos." he goes yeah well to be a dancing master is a thing but to be a faceless man is another thing entirely and this is where we get a twist that, that is intriguing to me because this guy Jacques Hakar, whatever his name is is so cool you know, character everybody, except for some Lannisters, could agree is a great character, wicked cool character. He says, and then we find out he works for the same red, the same god as the red woman, I think, because he says, well, a girl could come with me, you know, Bravo. She could offer these names that she always repeats at night to 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 the red god. And she said, no, no, I got to, you know, I got to take care of some business one day. He says, well, you're, you know, clearly you're a badass, are you, you know, future bad, current badass, future super badass. So he goes, let me take this coin. She's like, what am I going to buy with this? He's like, nothing. He goes, if you need me, 
You know, give this to somebody from Bravos and say, Valar Magulis. She says, Valar Magulis. He says, say it again, Valar Magulis. She says, Valar Magulis. And he says, all right, you know, take care, I'm out. And then he becomes a different person, changes his face around. He's some kind of uh, faceless man, and he's out. And then we we lose the maester in Winterfell, and, and Theon's locked up. And Osha and Holdor and Bran and Rick can meet with the maester, say goodbye to him. And he's like, all right, sneak out of here. And, uh, you know, most of uh, Winterfell's burned down. And then another scene, we're back in the tower, the Khaleesi, she's looking for her dragons. And I really like uh, just just good stuff. It's like the dragons are calling for her. She's trying to wander around a wizard's tower. One place I would love to go, I'd be terrified of these wizard's towers because they're all, it's like doing LSD or not even like mushroom, not like mushrooms would be more like hanging out with a wizard, but, you know, doing some sort of hallucinogen where you, you never know how it's going to go. Or that's like, oh, this is probably going to go 80% bad. Do you want to still take this drug? But Khaleesi, she's like, I got to, yeah, give it to me. I got to save my dragons. She's way, that's why she's the Khaleesi. But she's wandering around. She starts going through these doors and they open up another world. She goes through and then she's in the snowy room. And then it's like, oh, this is the throne room for uh, Westeros, King's Landing. And it looks like a roof's been burned away by dragons. There's the throne there. It's cold. It's icy. She th- she thinks about Stanford and then she hears a dragon. She moves on and then she's at the wall in the north and the door opens she wanders through the wall, and she looks very pale and very elven in some sense, but good still, good, good, great. Khaleesi looks good. And then there's a tent, like, made of dragon wings, I think, and she goes inside, and Drogo's there with her with her son, which is a typical um, wizard hallucinogen situation. They try to get you into some situation, ideal situation, where they can get you trapped. So she's like, oh, this might be not bad. You're looking great. He's like, you're looking great. You know, they, we, we were in love. Moon of my moon, sun of my stars, whole thing. This baby's like a interesting like, combination of us. Um, I'm not sure my motherly instincts aren't kicking in this second, but I like the baby. I like you better, Carl. And she says, what's going on? But Carl's so powerful, I think, that he even knows he's in a dream. He goes, I don't know if this is my dream or your dream. He says, uh, maybe maybe this is a dream. I don't know if it's my dream or your dream. And then they, one of them gives a speech and they say, until, you know, one day we'll meet again, until the mountain's something. And she leaves. That's like her final test or something because then she goes in and the dragons are on this pedestal locked up. And she's like, oh, well, you know, there, there's my guys. And uh, then the wizards appear. And then they reveal their plan. They're like, oh, wait, wait, you know, when your dragons were reborn into the world, you know, we suddenly got our magic back because we've been missing our magic or whatever. And now we got some powerful magic. But when they're close to us, the dragons, our magic's more powerful. And when you're close to the dragons, the dragons are more powerful. So we're going to keep you and the dragons here forever. You know, and we're going to do our wizard thing. And Khaleesi's like, dude, no, uh, Tracaris, you, you know, you guys, you don't mess with the Khaleesi. Have you heard? 
Then we're way up north with John and Mance. Mance, they're going to see. They say, hey, Mance knows how to make crow soup. And then John and Horn half-hand fight. Horn half-hand loses. And then Agreed takes John, and she's like, check this out. And he sees this huge camp uh, in this valley. And she says, it's time to meet the king beyond the wall, buddy. And then we're back with Khaleesi and she, her and Jorah and uh, the other guys. They catch the Zaro with the, the one girl that double-crossed the Khaleesi's in bed with him. And she says, you know, you don't, you don't obviously, I, I said it once this episode, I'll say it again, don't mess with me, I'm the Khaleesi. So we'll put these guys in the safe, these two, and we'll take all their stuff. They loot the, the guy's palace to get stuff for ships. And Jorah's so happy because Khaleesi's like, do you think this will buy a ship? He's like, yeah, a small ship. Let's, we're going to get moving here, boys. Let's, uh, this is great news. And then we're back in the north with uh, Sam and Gren and the other guy that, that I like. I just never know his name. And they're actually collecting shit, well, like literally collecting dung for heat. And in the wonderful comedy routine they do, Sam still talks. He's like, you know what, Gilly? You know what's my favorite part about Gilly or what's so interesting about Gilly? And the guys are like, what, what? Her dimples, her... The guys are like, what, what, what? Her dimples, oh boy, here it comes out. He's like, the thing that's so interesting about Gilly... And then there's a blast on the horn and they're like, oh, get ready. And then there's a second blast. One... One blast in the morning. Rangers are coming in the morning. Two blasts. Others are something. Three blasts is big, big. Three blasts is it. It's like three blasts. Like that hasn't been done in like a thousand years. And the guys run. This storm comes. And some of the White Walk type guys come. But Sam's hiding or somehow he's invisible because uh, uh, one of the guys is a blue-eyed walker. And he looks, it seemed like he looked at Sam, but he didn't bother. And they're going north, too. Or no, they're going south, I guess. So that's no good. Um, uh, so that's how the episode in the season ended. Wonderful. Well, wonderful season. Wonderful show. Now we're going to start up soon with uh, season three. But, uh, you know, we still got to finish this episode of this podcast first. So what are the things we might talk about tonight? Hopefully we'll talk about Picel. We'll talk about uh, uh, plunging necklines, embroidery uh, in those plunging necklines. When We'll talk about the long con. All right. Thanks for listening. Of course, we'll have pounce. We'll have some prayers. And we'll, we'll have a whole lot in between those things of me doing that and then saying, well, I see, okay, you know, so I'm glad you're here and now let's, 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 let's do this thing. All right. So sometimes the internet's one of those places that, uh, it is not the greatest and other times it's the best. And so one thing I thought about this episode with the way Picel treats Tyrion, who are, you know, Tyrion's the best, or well, no, he's no, he's he's in the, he's he's close to Davos, but he's no. I mean, you know, obviously Davos is my, you know, my 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 main, whatever. Anyway, I was thinking about this Picel. I'm like, does anybody freaking like this guy? Is there like a Picel fan community? 
So I did some, you know, searching of that, and then it comes up with uh, uh, an answer. Over, and ironically enough, it's on our favorite website, a forum of ice and fire, a wiki of, of you know, of renowned in in, in the community, and it's uh, titled uh, "Opinions on Pycelle." It's from their forums, I think, and it was started uh, by the the Night of Winter. Uh, what was September 11th, 2013, strangely enough. And he says, being intrigued about the lack rarity of threads about Picel's character, I decided to make this one. While I've seen various threads passionately arguing about every possible Westerosi character and his morality from Stark's Lannisters to Tyrell's to Barristan's, Danny, Littlefinger, Vars, I can't remember seeing anything about our favorite Grand Maester in any way. So basically, what's everyone's opinion of Pycelle? The Sword of Mourning says he's a thoroughly d- disgusting person. There's nothing more to discuss. Needle's Sheath. Oh, boy, that's a dirty one. Uh, lick Spittle, enough to describe him. Council uh, uh, member, that's just a regular. Lannistel loyalist, much like Manderlees. I think that was the guy that took out Tyrion. I'm not sure why the House Lannister inspires inspire such a loyalty. Leo, Renly's, Rainey's, but Balerion. Pycelle's the biggest traitor of all, disgusting rat. Uh, the mother of the others says uh, he's a butt on an average day, but can be an ass on daring occasions. People like him are the reason Schwarzenegger couldn't turn California's legislature around. So we got politics talking here. There's just too many nimrods like this clogging the wheels of government. Whoa, boy, this is like a, uh, this is a meta, this is like where you take something and then you make a point. Uh, so Arnold eventually gave up and something about a maid, same with something. Okay. Uh, young Black Dragon says he's nothing but a Lannister dog. Uh, and Arya Kitten Needle's Sheath laughs at something. A bong of ice and fire says, I wonder what his background is. Maybe he's a Lannister relative. The Silver Otter uh, says he's a Tywin's creature for sure. As a young maester, he heard the young lore of the rock destroyed the reins and the tarbacks. When Tywin was hand, I'm sure they bonded. Pycelle knew the Lannisters were the richest and, uh, you know, I actually have some knowledge here. I know that this Grand Maester, his job is to serve the Red Keep. And so, but this guy does seem to have a thing for Lannisters, but he's also in some sense, I, I hate him, but he is doing his job. Doesn't mean he's got to be rude about it, but he, and he's a bubbling. I don't see him where there's any use of blubbering. Because to me, he's a blubbering fool. But anyway, let's read some more. D- Dario knows best. That I always thought it was genius the way he walked a fine line. Up here, just smart enough to be some value, but not too smart that it'll cause suspicion and envy. Well, well done. Dragon Stoned says uh, something else. Uh, Drogo, Drogo says he doesn't like him. He's disgusting. Uh, another, not a lot of bad stuff about him. Uh, Sir Ellen's Tongue says he disliked Pytel, sycophant. Uh, I wouldn't read these comments. I'll put them in the show notes, but there's a lot of spoilers in here. I think I've been spoiled a little bit here. Uh, Blood of the Trout says he seems smart enough, but another use of sycophant. 
another person says, nice, nice house. Says, I like him, pretends to be dumb. And there's more pages of this. Uh, Lorraine says, you know, it's interesting that he was Grandmeister as well as Tywin's creature. I'd love to know the role he played in the Targaryen court, especially leading up to Enduring RR, which I don't know what that means. Robert's Rebellion, I bet. Um, Martin Martini Sigel says, uh, a small council were duplicitous vipers. Another nice language word. But unlike Littlefinger or Virus, there wasn't too much to like about Pysali's perfectly detestable. Minstrel says, uh, there's probably not any articles on him because it'd be an agreement. He was betrayed. He's betrayed. He's betrayed among the most people. He betrayed a lot of people. He's ineffectual in the power game. For example, rather than find a way to dissuade Ned from John Aaron's murder, someone who certainly appears to be not the most adept at politics, he hands him the same book and gives him the exact details of what he was investigating. Uh, this guy, Louis Dantas, says he's not a Parcel fan or a defender. He sounds like a bit of an apologist already, buddy, but... Uh, he says he does seem to be loyal and sincere in his corruption. He did participate. I don't understand that part. Minstrel says uh, he's a Taiwan's biggest cheerleader and defender and the public president of his fan club. By defending Taiwan's use of Gregor, Gregor Clegane in the first book, or helping open up the gates of the King's Landing, make him an active part in the Lannister atrocities. Even if it is heartfelt, his support for them or willing blindness on par with Robert and no one forgives him. Uh, Louis Dantas says, not sure I see the disagreement. Pycelle's a follower. This, so this is my stroll and somebody else. Uh, Dyer Wiener Dog says, for Pycelle to become Grand Maester, it might have taken some Lannister gold. He, this person sees none of the smarts of a regular maester in him. Mountain Tribesman says he's a murdering, brown-nosing, dirtbag, backstabbing. His behavior towards decent people such as Sansa was atrocious. By the way, how is Pycelle loyal? He betrayed two kings of the Seven Kingdoms, Eris and Robert. Uh, none to mention innocents like Elia Martell. Uh, so and so, so it says a man sincere in his insincerity. Uh, okay, then, is like a contrarian. They say, I kind of like him. I mean, everybody's right about all the wrongs he did, but I still find him sympathetic for some reason. Rhymes with weak says, well, at least he was loyal. Ramsey Below uh, says a his top three hated list. Says probably enough about Pycelle. We've given him enough airtime. But, you know, okay, so I'm not the only one that doesn't like him. And it doesn't seem like he does have fan clubs. That says something good about the Internet. Is that, you know, there's not everybody saying, you know, let's go Pycelle. Well, I thought I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the plunging neckline of, uh, uh, the plunging neckline on Natalie Dormer, uh, Marjorie Tyrell. I think that's her name. But, you know, I was like, well, how, uh, you know, what is this, uh, with this cleavage? Is it, uh, well, one, a couple things with logistically, I didn't. I didn't pause it or anything, cause, but uh, 
you hear about like the Oscars when there's a lot of cleavage out, and the or at least back in the day, you're like, oh, well, I use double sided tape. I would never, you know. And then I'm like, that's not comfortable. And then you're like, okay, well, otherwise you'd be guy. I mean, and now with the internet, it'd be even worse. But like, you like back before the internet, you just had to deal with pervs, and then pervs like with print pictures, and then you now you have to deal with the internet because it's like you turn anyway. There's gonna, so I was like, I don't know. Back then, dudes are probably more perverted because they didn't have the internet, or maybe they're less. I don't know. But I just can't. But but then I was like, well, how much cleavage? was getting shown back in the day. So I, I tried to research that. And it came up with this term I'd seen before, I'd heard before, but, you know, I don't know, called uh, del décolletage. Is that right? Décolletage is the uh, upper part of a woman's torso comprising her neck, shoulders, back, and chest that is exposed by the neckline of her clothing. However, the term is most commonly applied to a neckline that reveals or emphasizes cleavage. Low-cut neck necklines are the feature of ball gowns, evening gowns, leotards, lingerie, and swimsuits, among other fashions. Although décolletage does not itself prescribe the extent of exposure of a woman's upper chest, the design of a décolletage Colette. Oh, I guess I'm. Decolleté. The design of a decolleté garment takes into account current fashions, aesthetics, social norms, and the occasion. Though neckline styles have varied in Western societies, the decolletage may be regarded as an aesthetic and an expression of femininity in some parts of the world. Decolletage is considered provocative and shocking. So we're going to cut straight to the history. In Indonesia, especially in Java, a breastcloth known as the kembin was worn for centuries until the 20th century. Today, shoulder exposure gowns still feature in many Indonesian rituals. Gowns which exposed a woman's neck and the top of her chest were not very common and were very common and non-controversial in Europe from at least the 11th century until the Victorian period in the 19th century. Balls or evening gowns especially featured low square delocatage designed to display and emphasize cleavage. So there you go. Low-cut dresses as partially exposing breasts were considered more acceptable than today. A bared Women's ankles, legs, or shoulders were considered more risque than exposed breasts. In 1450, Agnes Sorel, mistress to Charles VII of France, is credited with starting a fashion trend when she wore deep, low, square délocatage gowns with fully bared breasts in the French court. Oh, wow. Other aristocratic. Hold on. Hey, can you fire up the uh, time machine quick? Okay, great. Anyway, sorry. Um, other aristocratic women, aristocratic women of the time, who were painted with breast exposed, included Simonetta Vespucci, whose portrait with exposed breasts was painted by Piero de Di Cosmo in 1480. During the 16th century. Uh, women's fashions with exposed breasts were common in society from queens 
to prostitutes and emulated by all classes. Anne of Brittany has also been painted wearing a dress with a square neckline. Low square de la cottage styles. Was uh, Marjorie's, was her square or is it a V? I'm not sure. I think it might have been a square though. Were popular in England in the 17th century and even Queen Mary II and Henrietta Maria, wife of Charles I of England, were depicted with fully bared breasts. But when they say bared breasts, they just mean, I don't know. Architect Indigo Jones designed a mask costume for Henrietta Maria that revealed both of her breasts. They say revealed. Does it mean showed or like showed part of them? In aristocratic upper-class circles, the display of breasts was at times a status symbol a sign of beauty, wealth, or social position. From the Renaissance onwards, the bared breast even evoked associations with nude sculptures of classical Greece, that exerting an influence on art, sculpture, and the architecture of the period. After the French Revolution, des collatages became larger in the front and less in the back. During the fashions of the period, 1795 to 1820, many women wore dresses which bared the bosom and shoulders. During the Victorian period, social attitudes required women to cover their bosom in public. For ordinary wear, high college, so that, that, that took that off. So that is over at Wikipedia, and it's interesting, but then it brought up another non-breast-related thing, which was uh, the... Um, embroidery on these beautiful dresses, you know, that highlights the De La Cotage or, you know, interplays with it. It tells a story of not just, um, you know, uh, you know, it tells a story. And there's a beautiful, like, uh, what do you call that with pictures article, like a photographic essay at the Smatterist, which I'll put in the show notes, but I obviously can't read it because it's mostly pictures. But Michelle Carriger, who I think we've talked about before, maybe we haven't, she does the embroidery for Game of Thrones. I went over to her website, uh, and I'm just going to read a little bit from her website. This page reveals Michelle's process in creating embroidery for the Game of Thrones. There's a video time lapse revealing uh, how much detail goes into creating the embroidery. It's uh, 42 hours of work condensed into 10 seconds. And then there's a collection of sheets showing the embroidery created for the show. Uh, the first one is uh, one of Circe's costumes. The designer, Michelle Clapton, that's who we talked about, wanted to use a Lannister sigil motif on this dress. And she had it hand-printed in gold onto a rich velvet. So this is Michelle Carragher saying, I enlarged the design and made two embroidered bands to apply to the costume once it had been fitted and made. Stage one, she printed the design onto some square, some gold organza. Stage two, she embroidered an outline of the lions. Stage three, she started to build up and fill texture and details into the lions and define the background decoration. Stage four, define the lions further by adding manes and extra texture. Stage 5, build more layers into the designs with beads, pearls, crystals, and metal rings on the lion and background. Stage 6, 
painted a fine layer of glue onto the back of the design to hold the stitches. The completed motif is cut out of the organza and stitched onto the costume. This is for another, uh, for Circe Kimono. Uh, Michelle Clapton wanted some hawk-like birds swooping as if hovering above their prey to decorate the address. Stage one, once I had chosen my bird design, I drew an outline of it on some gold organza and then started to create its body texture. I used some velvet for the breast and some Italian tubular mesh wire to outline the body and wings. Stage two, I built in layers of feather and stitching into the bird. Stage three, the bird develops as I add stitches. Think of it as drawing or painting, adding layers to build depth into your embroidery. Stage four, I add more detail into the wings and head. Stage five, next I start to create the decorative setting for the bird using some gold Italian tubular mesh wire. I stitch on top of this with a combination of fine metallic and embroidery threads and a stem stitch. Stage six, once I've got the bird in the setting to the stage I am happy with, I place it next to the garment to see if anything needs adding to the design. Stage 7, I cut the organza away and stitch the design into the costume, adding more stitching if needed. Wow, it's really impressive. You guys have got to check it out. Uh, I really knew nothing about embroidery, uh, so it's interesting. Because I guess part of me, I guess I would have thought they just did it right onto the dress. Uh, and, and I would have thought it was a lot of work, but not anything like this much work. But it really adds something to the show. Um, and, and this is like one of those things like that's operating on more than one level. You're like, wow, why do I feel so immersed in this Game of Thrones universe? And this is one of the many reasons why. So thank you, Michelle Carragher, for all your hard work. Baelish is talking to Sansa, and you get the sense that... Uh, He's not up to any good, and then you see Varys working with Roz, and you're like, man, what are these? These are all con men. So that made me think of, like, these guys are on this long con. And I was like, what is that? And I look up the long con, and this great article comes up on the Leverage Wikia. I've never seen Leverage before. I've seen ads for it. It looked, looks cool. But it's just interesting that this is what one of the top searches for long con, so I'm going to read it. And again, it's from LeverageWikia.com. The long con. Long con refers to any variety of cons, and we'll, we'll get to the definition of that maybe in a second, which require more planning and preparation, a longer window of interaction with the con's targets, and a longer period of time to execute. The long con may also require a large crew or number of involved people to pull off the deception needed to relieve the mark of their cash or other valuables. I mean, they're dealing much more and more than that in the Game of Thrones. Unlike a short con, a long con requires time to slowly draw the marker marks into the con, but often result, results in large payouts. Because of the difficulty in organization and execution, long cons are considered to be for experts and not the province of new young con men. Traditionally, a long con is return, referred to an elaborate con of one or more marks which ends with the payout which marks the surrender of their money or valuables. Long cons play on one or both basic human frailties, greed and desperation. A classic example of a long con is a wire scam as shown in the film The Sting. 
Contemporary long cons such as boiler rooms, cash for gold, Ponzi pyramid schemes involve multiple marks, often in sizable numbers in a gradual payout, but are able to stay in place for long periods of time because there's seeming legitimacy. The line between a genuine long con and the garden variety fraud may be a fine one, such as in the case of Bernie Madoff's elaborate security fraud. Players in the con. There are three key players in the long con, a victim, a con artist, and one or more associates. The mark is a victim of a grifter, practitioner of con confidence tricks, or a con artist. A grifter may play many roles and often creates multiple personas over their career. In the shill, an accomplice to the grifter who has no apparent connection to the con. Oh, I don't know if we, shills are put in place to encourage the mark and act, to act in a desired way. The long con is executed in one of two settings, a real-world setting or an empty room. Known as a big store set up to look like a real-world setting, such as a stock trading room. For a long con to work, it requires a team of grifters which play roles. Some players may be experts at one role, others can change them up. This is when you get into more of the Ocean's Eleven cons. The roper is a member of the crew who identifies the mark, lures the mark in. The inside man is a crew member in charge who executes the con. The fixer often works close to the inside man as a backup. The face is a shill, generally attractive female to discourage the mark or distract. The outside man, man could be a potential threat like law enforcement or a potential fake target for the mark to exploit. Or to gain the mark's confidence, a floater is a secondary inside man who can work in conjunction on the mark or a secondary angle on the same con. There's other roles like the forger, the grease man, the thief, the hacker, the wheel man, and the bag man. So that's over on um, uh, the Leverage Wikia, and this is over on Wikipedia Confidence Trick. Confidence Trick synonyms include confidence scheme, scam, and stratagem is an attempt to defraud a person or group after first gaining their confidence, used in the classical sense of trust. Confident tricks exploit characteristics of the human psyche such as dishonesty, honesty, vanity, compassion, credulity, irresponsibility, naivete, and greed. An individual who operates such scams is known as a confidence artist, con man, or con artist, and such people can operate alone or in concert with others. Terminology, the perpetrator of the confidence trick is often referred to as a confidence or con man, woman, or artist, or a grifter. The first usage of this term, confidence man, in English was 1849 by New York City Press during the trial of William Thompson. Thompson chatted with strangers until he asked if they had the confidence to lend him their watches, whereupon he would walk off with the watch. He was captured when a victim recognized him on the street. A confidence trick is known as a con game. A con, a scam, a grift, a hustle, a bunco, a swindle, a flimflam, a gaff, gaffle, or a bamboozle. The intended victims are known as marks or suckers. When accomplices are employed, they are known as shills. A short con or a small con is a fast swindle that takes just a few minutes. It typically aims to rob the victims of everything in their wallet. A long con or a big con or in British English, a long game is a scam that unfolds over several days, weeks, involves a team of swindlers, props, sets, costumes, and scripted lines. It aims to rob the victim of thousands of dollars, offering 
often by getting him or her to empty out their bank accounts or borrow from family members. Stages of the con. In Confessions of a Confidence Man, Edward H. Smith lists six definite steps or stages of growth in every finely balanced and well-conceived confidence game. One follows the other with absolute precision. In some games, one or more of these acts, to use a theoretical comparison, may be dropped out, but where that happens, the game is not a model one. The reference to the stage is apt for a fine con game has introduction, development, climax, denouement, and close, just like any good play. And that is not the only analogy to the drama, for the scenes are often carefully set the background is often always a vital factor. In the colorful and mirthful language of the Bunko Man, all these parts of the game have their special names. I give them with their definitions. Foundation work are the preparations which are made before the scheme is put in motion, including the plan, employment of assistance, and so forth. The approach is a manner of getting in touch with the victim, often the most elaborately and carefully prepared. The build-up is a rousing and sustaining of interest in the victim, including the scheme to him or her, in this case maybe with Sanson um, Baelish, rousing his greed, showing the chance for profit, and filling him with so, so much anticipation and cupidity that his judgment is warped and his caution thrown away, pay off or convince her an actual or apparent paying of money by the conspirators to convince the victim and settled doubts by a cash demonstration, an old Banco game, uh, initial small bets where the victim was allowed to win were the payoff, and stock swindles the fake dividend sent to stockholders to encourage larger investments are the payoff. The hurrah, this is like the denouement in a play, and no con scheme is complete without it. It is a sudden crisis or unexpected development by which the mark is pushed over the last doubt or obstacle and forced to act. Once the hurrah is sprung, either the, either, either the scammer has total control or the con fails. The in and in. This is a point in the con game when the conspirator puts some of his money into the deal and that of the victim. First, to remove the last doubt. That may tarry in the gall's mind, and second, to put the con man in control of the situation after the deal is completed, thus forestalling a squeal. Often the whole game is built up around this feature, and just as often it does not figure at all. In, some, in addition, some games require what is called corroboration, which means what it says. Uh, one last thing is vulnerability, confidence tricks. Confidence tricks exploit typical human characteristics such as greed, Dishonesty, vanity, opportunism, lost compassion, credulity, irresponsibility, desperation, and naivete. As such, there is no consistent profile of a confidence trick victim. The common factor is simply the victim relies on the good faith of the con artist. Victims of investment scans tend to show an incautious level of greed and gullibility, and many con artists target the elderly. But even alert and educated people may be taken in, in by other forms of confidence trick. The accomplices known as shills help manipulate the mark into accepting the perpetrator's plan. In a traditional confidence trick, the mark is led to believe that he will be able to win money or some other prize by doing some task. The accomplices may pretend to be strangers who have benefited from performing the task in the past. And that's so that's con games. I'm not sure if Baelish is a con man or just a bad man.
We'll find out soon, won't we? So here we go. Faceless men from the Game of Thrones wiki. Uh, I've seen a man who could change his face the way other men change their clothes. That's from Dora. D-O-R-E-Doria. The faceless men are an organization based in the free city of Bravos. Though their members range far and wide across Essos and Westeros, they are reportedly a guild of assassins who command exorbitant fees but have a reputation for success that is unparalleled among any comparable organization. The faceless men possess the ability to physically change their faces, shape-shifting, so they appear in, as entirely new person. Their headquarters are located in the House of Black and White, a temple dedicated to the God of Death, who I think is that same thing. Okay, over at a wiki of ice and fire. Oh, this has got some more backstory. The Faceless Men are a religious society of assassins who worship the many-faced god, a god of death. So, no, is that the same god? History. The society originated in the volcanic slave mines of Valeria. That sounds terrible. Prior to the founding of Bravos and the doom of Valeria. The tale of its beginning centers around a figure of unknown origins who was the first Faceless Man. The man heard the prayers of the slaves to their various gods. Also, the Coliseo liked these guys and came to conclude that they all prayed to the same God with a hundred different faces, the many-faced God, and that he was God, the God's instrument. This might, this God could be, oh, never mind, I don't want to um, induce any God's scorn. Uh, the, uh, this led him to giving the first gift to the most desperate slave. The first faceless man later brought the gift to the masters as well. Religion. In the guild's House of Black and White and Bravos, followers wear black and white robes and perform religious duties for the community, such as tending to the dead. The house contains a fountain and alcoves with idols of many death gods, including the Stranger of the Seven, but there are no formal services. Some visiting worshippers light candles to their god and then drink from a fountain using a black cup. The religious order refill the fountain with a poison, so that drinking from the fountain leads to a painless death. This is sometimes referred to as the gift from the many-faced gods. Huh, that's interesting. A phrase associated with the cult of the many-faced gods is Valar Magulis, which we'll find out, and I don't want to spoil you with what it means, but it, it's a formal... Oh, no, I'll, I'll tell you that. Well, yeah, this one. It's a formal response to this Valar Doharis, all men must serve. According to the guild, the god is present in many religions, all under different names. In Kor, it is the black goat. In Yi-Ti, it is the line of night. And in the faith of seven, it is the stranger. Inner workings and assassinations. Followers of him of many faces consider death to be part of the natural order of things and a merciful end to suffering. For a price, the guild will agree to kill anyone in the world considering this contract to be a sacrament of their god. The price is always high or dear, but within the means of the person if they are willing to make the sacrifice. The cost of their services depends on the prominence and security of the target. When the small council discusses the possibility of hiring a faceless man to get Danny, Peter Baelish states, states that the army could hire Peter Baelish states that the council could hire an army of sellswords for half the price a faceless man would charge for a merchant and that killing a princess would be far more expensive. 
An elite group of followers within the house called the Faceless Men are trained to perform this task. The Faceless Men are occasionally women. Only rarely would they train a child. They are trained to use all their senses to root out deception and create their disguises, seemingly possessing magical abilities that allow them to change their appearance at will. Part of their training includes discarding a true and their true part of their training includes discarding their true identity in a nihilistic way and thinking of themselves as no one. The faceless men reconvene at the House of the Black and White, the temple of the many faced God, where they discuss the potential jobs for the month and dole out these contract assassinations through a round table. They use a variety of methods to kill their targets, including a poison called the Strangler. So that's a little bit about the Faceless Men. Hello, hello, this is Lord Tommen, Prince Tommen, and Mr. Pounce. Call, whatever, I am not sure I understand speaking to you. Well, I'm Sir Pounce, the best friend a cat's ever had, and Sir Pounce is the best friend a boy's ever had, particularly me. Tommen is Sir Pounce's my best friend, but also Sir Pounce is friends, not best friends, but friends with justice, he says. And he said, uh, oh, you know, oh, long, uh, long, long thing, but I, I'm practicing. There's a boy who is a milkmaid, who Joff, no, 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 Sir Pounce is looking at me, it's a test, milkmaid, there was a milkmaid, and she went away, I was nodding, Sir Pounce is nodding, okay, uh, there's a milkmaid that went away, and Joff said, he didn't say I, I did it, he made a stable boy, the stable boy did it, according to Joff, Right, so Pounce. Yes, I'm making so Pounce happy. Oh, uh, and 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 so so Joff said the stable boy took away the milkmaid. But Sir Pounce says no. Do not go to the bathroom when the milk boy is underneath your chamber pot hole because that goes on his head. So Pounce he said, uh. Rind of, rind of. Okay, um. Oh, no, Joff set the, uh, that boy up for the crime. But Sir Pounce says he's innocent. So we want to take this boy and put his head on a pike. Innocent on a pike? Or something, Mother. Uh, no, Sir Pounce says. Okay, and his name is Oolong. Sir Pounce says. So I, I got. I'm I'm doing good. So, well, our mission is to innocent this boy, so he could properly be piped. Oh, I'm very excited for. Uh, I, I'm, I I've got it almost right. Now, wait, see if I could get this right, right, Sir Pounce. Oh, Sir Pounce is uh, rubbing against me with glee, for being. Uh, uh, is this mediocrity, Sir Pounce, that I'm having? You'll never be even mediocre. You're dumber than that blubbering maester, Mother says. But, oh, oh, Sir Pounce is happy. Okay, so I'll keep going, okay. Sir Pounce is happy. I'm happy. Oh, I've never felt this way because I'm filled with a, a, a thing, feelings. I've never felt them bubbling like this. But Sir Pounce said to me, he said, Listen, Tommen, 
Things don't look good for the boy down there. Uh, um, what did we, Ulam? And he said, hey, we got a good job. I've been spying on him, and uh, I'm positive, you know, the uh, speech trial thingamajig is coming up where they'll decide to, no pike is the good part, or innocent pike, that's what we wanted. So he said he's been spying on Joff, and Joff was working on his case. He said his speech. So, Saban said, we got to go up there and, uh, and, and, and hide under Joff's bed and watch him. And it was, it was so, we went and we waited till Joff left. We waited till Joff left for he had to deal with some of the common fools of the, the royal, uh, um, whatever they're called, the rich folk, I think. Oh, I'm, I guess Sir Bounce is saying, calm down, Tom. Okay. Okay, I'm calming down. So we went into Joff's room and we hid under his bed and I, and then I was seized with giggling. I could not step us oh, <laughs> like that, but over and over. And Sapounds said, and then Sapounds, then he gave up on stopping me from giggling. He said, giggle it out, giggle it out. And he was rubbing up my, running up my shirt and down my pants and tickling me. And I was giggling and giggling. And then I fell into a sleep. And Sapounds tried to wake me, but he, he, he could not. I was in a gig, post-giggle sleep. Is the sleep that, uh, I'm not sure I understood the, uh, the father, I, the god that is called the father. I don't, one of those gods, the father makes me nervous. The mother makes me, when I think about praying to the mother, I think about going to the bathroom. Uh, but anyway, one of those, it is the sleep of the one god that is not, not like that, that would make me rest after I giggle so. So I was in a deep sleep, and then Pounce was trying to wake me, and Joff, and then I heard Joff speaking, rah, 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 and he would go, bah, rah, 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 rah. and at first I was dreaming, common dreams I have, but even more, because Joff was speaking for real, I believe, and then I woke, and Joff was walking around the room. He had, uh, he had like, fake people there sitting. Uh, they had... um. Uh, they had spilled some wine, Sir Pounce said, on them, but they were his, they were listening to him speak. Every once in a while, one of, I don't know if they, I think they were dolls, so Sir Pounce said, stuffed dolls, Tom, and do not worry. And he was saying, this boy, this common thief, oh, he, and he, he was walking around. Now, the only thing I heard is that he said, uh, the milkmaid every day, at uh, at second bell or something after she's fed and cleaned and it is time to go to the milking and she must walk by the stables to go to fetch the milk for the evening meal and to fetch, you know, which is her job as a milkmaid, I think. And then I said, uh, hmm, uh, I said, oh, that's strange, Sir Pounce. Uh, because, uh, and he said, shh, shh, be quiet, dumbin. And Joff said, what was that? And then he, he was, he, he, he hit one of the dolls and he said, no, order in my court. And he said, ah, and he kept going. And then I said, oh, goodness. It was just Joff being Joff, blah, blah, blah. I, uh, so don't, when I observe this, yeah, man, 
he is not a man. I hear tales of his, but, you know, Don, Dong, and his wine, and I've, I've, I've had enough. He's so, oh, blo- he's a, you know, a slanderer and some. But I said afterwards, okay, so Joff finished up. And then he called the hound, and he said, hound, get rid of these uh, witnesses or whatever, uh, jury, I don't know, court or something, peons. And so we stayed, and then so I, but I said, so I said, what was that? And I said, well, I say, I think that when the milkmaid goes to get the milk, she does not go by the stables. It is not... Because one time, Sir Pounce, I was listening to uh, Sir Mandaron or Moon Moon Moon, and he was saying to me, well, he said, take a look at those. And I said, what? I said, what? I don't understand. So I would go and stare at the cows for and look. Uh, and then I would, you know, sometimes I would say, oh, Sept, are you changing in there? And then I would, you know, oh, whoops, oh, oh, oh. And then I would look at the, and I would say, I don't understand. I don't. So, but I know, because I would go there. I go there a lot. So, Pounce, you know, well, you're my best friend. You know already. But you didn't know. Don't, why don't you remember that, Sir Pounce? We don't go by the stables. We go the opposite way of the stables. So how would she go by the stable boy, as Joff said? And that is when the stable boy said, Oh, come on in there. And then he said he took her away or whatever uh, when she was on a, a, a double bell milk run to go get the milk. She would have been far away from the stables. And the stable boy, as Joff had already said, was fixing the shoes on uh, the, the hound's horse for later, at that exact same time, Joff said he remembers giving the order to uh, put the shoes on the hound's horse so he could shoot arrows at the hound while he's on the horse. And that would have made... So it doesn't make any sense. And Sir Pounce looked at me for a while, and I think he was thinking of me uh, staring at the cows because he was staring like I like to stare at the cows. My mouth will be open, and I would say I don't, I don't just don't understand it. And what am I feeling inside now? It is like uh, I don't know. And so, uh, oh, so, so that is so. Pounce after he got out of his deluge, uh, he said, "Where's it, Gora?" And he said, "I said, uh." uh uh, on, 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 oh, 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 And he said, nothing, nothing. I said, you, the boy, go to the bathroom, on. And he said, oh, hello, Tom, and I'm going to stay away from the hole here and just shout out to you at an angle so you don't get confused and you don't go party on me. I said, that's fine, Oolong. I have a solution to get your head on a pike. And he said, well... I said, because you're innocent, correct? And I said, I figured out what we will do at the trial. And I explained the whole thing to him, and he seemed to understand. I mean, again, something came over me. He said, come closer to the hole. Go closer. Closer. You cannot hear me. Come closer, and I will tell you. This time I drew cold water on him. I had cold water. And he said, why do you do that? And I said, I don't know. And then I asked him about the cows and what Mandarin said. And he said, Tommen, 
I feel pity you. I pity, pity, pity you, uh, you poor boy. And I, I'm glad Sir Pounce is with you. Uh, and I hope. And then he said something about why of all the places he would get thrown here and all his hope would be in the hands of a fool. And I said, which fool? Uh, Sir Dantos? Because he is, he is, a. Uh, he, he smells strange, uh, much like... The, did you ever know that? He, part of him smells like father, and part of him smells like the stables. So I sometimes I call him stable father, the fool. And then the boy, he sighed, and he said, Well, okay, I think this is a good plan, because you're right. Good job, Tommen. Can't wait for your idea to get me free. And I said, You will be as innocent as mother says. And he said, okay, well, I'll see you tomorrow at my trial. I can't wait. So that's so that's the latest with me and Sir Pounce on the case. Uh, setting, uh, you know, setting things right and uh, not looking or feeling strangely about cows. We no telling mother about that, staring at the cows uh, at all. Or what the thoughts I have when... Never mind, never mind. So that's Tommen and Pounce, the best friends whoever could be in the history of friendship. There is but one friendship that is uh, between a man and a cat that is sung in song. Well, there's the song about the man and his cat are friends, but that is not the best friends that friends could ever have. Sir Palm, Sir... Oh boy, I was, uh, I'm still thinking, I, I think about, I would like to stay under Job's bed again, but Tommen said, oh no, 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 please, no, Tommen, uh, to see what I could see and just giggle, giggle, so. But anyway, best friends, Sir Pounce, Sir Tommen, I will talk to you soon when we set free this young, And well, but then what will I do for, because I say to him, um, you know, Sir Pounce is not here, I'm all alone. Hello, Anton, Anton. Uh, anyway, I, I'm, I'm, anyway, I should take my nightshade now, so I will talk to you soon. Good day. Crone, sweet, sweet Crone, Miller, Smith, Barky, Jester. It's me praying in update um, on this, you know, Westeros. Westeros update, so last I left off, um, I was hiding in some hay last week-ish, and play, you know, I had my, um, uh, yo-yo, uh, which, Crone, I don't know if you, uh, thought about that anymore. It's, like, not like walking a dog, like, you, I wouldn't go to some home and say, okay, therapy dog here, who wants to walk the therapy dog? It's not like that, um, and it's not going to run away. It's like a, you'll see, Crone. Well, we've never actually met, so I don't know if you, well, you're a goddess, so you should be able to see. But anyway, so I was telling you guys, I was working with that Serio. Serio, you know, he was very popular, very huge, huge success. Ongoing stories, you know. And I think maybe you were wondering, God's like, well, well, you wouldn't be your God's, but, you know, what's the story about? His story was, uh, I don't know, because I was so worried about getting hit by the fruits and vegetables. 
something about somebody. I don't know. They did something innocent or something. I don't know. But um, so whatever that. And then the last time, our last show, Cat Stevens, Aristotle were waiting for me. And I guess I went too far when I said that uh, um, ethics is not poetic. I think it's something like that. I said, uh, you know, the poet, the poet, there's nothing poetic about ethics, especially Nick and Nick and Mock and ethics. And I don't feel like there is at all. And there's nothing. And I got some poetics to drop or something. I don't remember, but they were looking for me. I was hiding in the hay and I heard them going around. I'm pretty sure they knew I was there because they were like, uh, well, Cat Stevens, he, uh, again, I'm not positive if this is, like, if these guys, like, something about transversing over from wherever Cat Stevens was and wherever Aristotle was messed with their minds, because I don't know, they're not normally, but anyway, Cat Stevens, he was singing a lot. It was kind of like I was in a musical, because he's like, we will find him. We will find, find, find him, because he's going to win down the road to the woods. And then he would, like, work on some chords, and he'd be like, hold on, hold on. We will find him. We will f-. And, and uh, I could tell Aristotle was getting kind of irritated. He's like, you know what? And he's like, I listened to you all last night with your thing about whatever, you know, your new theories. What, you know, and how you, and, you know, and it turns out they both uh, have a thing for the maiden. They didn't know it because they were mumbling to themselves. I don't, never mind, it's not, but, but he's singing, well, find him. And then Aristotle's really grumbling, and I said, hmm, well, uh, let's see. I think, uh, so I said, well, okay, let's see, and no plan. He's a good plan. I say, well, let's just go, go, go with God's, as they say. And so I leaped out of the hay and I said, you found him. You have found him. I was not in the woods. I was in the hay. And I said, ooh, caddy, caddy, you're on the guitar. Bada, bada. And then he hit me with his guitar, which uh, hurt. A, a lot. Luckily, he uh, he he hit me with the big part, and uh, I had my forearm, so most of it broke on my forearm. And then he was trying to sw- he was swinging just the the neck, and then I said, uh, you know, you, you know, father, I don't want to be father or your son. And then they they gather, you know, they cornered, they had me cornered. And they were threatening me, but they didn't really, all they had was that in Aristotle. I was like, what do you got, some hemlock on you or something? And that made him even madder. I think that was probably not Aristotle. I think that was Plato or Socrates. And I said, where's your robe, man? Because he was wearing Westerosi garb. And then I noticed he had on those boots. Remember I was telling you, God, remember all those prayers I made about those boots with the fur trim? It was a removable fur trim. Um, like they were hand stitched, very sweet boots. Aristotle's wearing like ones, but his were a different color. His were red, a little, a little flashy for my taste. And I said, "What?" I go, "Do those boots have removable fur trim?" And and it, it, he said, "As a matter of fact, they do." 
And I said, I can't help but notice you guys are, uh, you know, threatening me or, you know, kind of trying to corner me. I'm not sure exactly sure why. Um, you know, I just did that show, and you know, I'm a, you know, I do parody, and I was like, or what uh, was, and um, uh, what's the other one? Satire uh, of uh, cultures I've heard about. Is that why you, were you guys here for my uh, autograph or something? And they say, you know, you know why we're here. Uh, you know, we need to know where your machine is. And I said, well, clearly you guys got me. And um, I was like, have you guys been watching that serial? And they said, yeah, yeah. And I said, he's pretty super smart, uh, well-produced. Well, yeah, brilliant minds behind that that guy. That guy, his mind is like, uh, he's like an investigative storyteller at the same time. He's bridging the gaps between journalism and um uh, you know, narrative. And then they just, you know, was quiet. And I said, you know, and you guys watch, watch my show, right? You, you guys, you know, so who do you think has a metaverse machine for real? Uh, you know, I'm just a fall guy. The serial told me to wait down here for you guys. He said, wait after every show. And then he said to take you guys, um, oh, what did he say? And they were like one second and they went back and they were arguing about if I was as dumb as I seemed, as I looked. Uh, and they said, what is he probably, I think is what I heard uh, Aristotle say. And Katz even said, is he as dumb as he looks? Is he as dumb as he looks? Oh, child, he's as dumb as a child. And they said, Cat, I'm so sick of you. You don't even have a guitar right now. And then I said, okay, okay, we got something here. And I said, all right, boys, well, I'm supposed to lead you to the cliff. That's where the machine's hidden, right on the edge of the cliff, and then Sirio's going to push you off. Oh, boy. No, that's right. It's hidden on a, a cave right below the cliff, the machine is. Which, God, it really is, just a sign. And um, so you guys will be right by the cliff. And they said, we heard you whispering to the gods that the machine... And I said, oh, no, you guys caught me. And I was thinking that, that, that I was like, oh, no, they did catch me. I said, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, lead you right to the cliff. And you can catch me. Oh, no, you get... Well, good thing Sirio's in his locked room with, uh, you know, the maid. You know, you guys familiar with the maiden? You guys pray at all? You're into this Westerosi religions at all? And I said, I didn't, as soon as I said maiden, both their eyes went wide. And I said, yeah, you've seen the uh, statues, huh? That's ma- maiden, maiden, maiden head and maiden down. Maidenville, you guys, we traveled through all those uh, maiden, maiden lane, uh, maiden, maiden court, maiden place. That was, did you guys go to see that statue in the fountain at the end of maiden place? And they were, they love the maiden. Maiden, if you're up there, these guys are, you know, obviously dirt bags. And no, no offense to either one of them, but they've been traveling through too many universes, so it's aged their, um, their essences and the rest of them. But so they were like looking at me, like, uh, um, and I said, well, you know, let's go to the cliff, boys. You know, was, uh, I just got to leave a note here. Uh, you know, with my yo-yo, so Serio knows that this is my yo-yo, 
And, um, you know, we'll just leave him and the maiden asleep. And they said, well, uh, well, may, well what room is a uh, cereal? And I said, oh, he's not in a room, you know. And they said, listen, we know we know you're, um, you know, you're, you're, you're. And I said, okay, well, I said, what do you guys, what do you guys, uh, um, you got a, you got a, how many people can you fit in your uh, time machine? And they said two. And I say, two, you've been traveling hot together, tracking me, and, and you were up to some other night. Do you guys have anything to do with the Jets season, poor season? And they didn't know what I was talking about. I was like, oh, okay. They said, I said, Cat Stevens, you don't know who the Jets are? Aren't you a sports fan? And then he said, oh, the maiden is my... And I said, Cat, that's my gig, redoing your songs. You're supposed to be coming up with new ones. And it was, it was a little lull in the conversation. I said, okay, well, well um, yeah, let's go. Because, uh, you know, I, I would wake up Serio, but you said your machine can only fit two of you. And, you know, you get, it sounds like I could tell you guys like the Maiden, so all three of you can't go in your time machine anyway with the Maiden, like both of you and the Maiden. Only It would be only one of you and the Maiden could go. And they said, uh, well, you, you, oh, yeah. And then they looked at each other. And uh, I, said, I said, don't worry. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure if we go through the kitchen, you know, you guys could get some knives and maybe some sharp stuff or some, you know, like a, a cup of tea for cat laced with, and you know, a cup of tea laced with poison for the cereal, I mean. And, and you know, then we'll... You know, I'll just distract Sarah. You guys just take the maiden. You take her back. You can threaten with your knives, Sarah, yeah, and just take the maiden and, you know, figure out who's going to go with the maiden, which one of you is going to go on the maiden. I mean, I, I, in, yeah, with the maiden uh, uh, that's sleeping with Sirio, um right now. And then they were, and I said, oh, you guys, you guys are the worst villains ever. Because they were just sitting there looking at I don't think they were ready to do violence on me, but I think they were maybe a little bit cowardly, and they are trying to size each other up. So I said, let's go, and, uh, you know, don't pick up, you know, you know, pick up the pace, let's go. And then, guys, I remembered that, uh, you remember I said that, that uh, you know, inns would kick everybody out, but I remembered there was, like, this secret serial fan club where people would gather after the show, and these were people who had been drinking all night, and they would gather in some secret club where they could drink and still talk about the show. And I was like, wait a second, okay. This, guy, this I wasn't saying out loud, I'm just saying to you guys. Um, so I said, yeah, come on, let's go to his room. And they said, well, where are we going? This doesn't seem like, I said, oh, he said, you know, he said, you know, the maiden, when he, when Serio and the maiden are um, kissing, he said she makes so much noise. I said, I don't understand. I've never kissed a a, a woman before. So what, what what kind of noises does she make? And he said she, she he laughed and he said she's she's you know she screams sweet something. And he said he she curls her toes. And then they were like, whoa, and they're punching their own fist. And so I remember this, this uh, you know, kind of shed where the serial fans would hang out. So I said, uh, yeah, 
And I said, well, it's all that noise in there. I was like, oh, boy. I, I go, you know what he said is something about the maiden. I was like, do you guys know what a, a orgy is? And they were like, Whoa. And I said, yeah, he said, see, it was like something. I don't know. Like he said to him and his, he said, you know. So I think that's probably that orgy he was talking about. And they was, you could tell they were getting more and more mad. Cat was pulling his beard out. And then I open the door and I go, oh, cereal, it's just you and the maiden in here. Wow, look at maiden. And they were behind me. I said, wow, maiden. Everyone was silent when I opened the door. I said, look at that oh, beautiful, beautiful um, maiden, so sweet. And just here with cereal, it was a bunch of voices, guys. It was just some role play. And they go through the door. And then they see a bunch of dudes that are just sitting around a table drinking ale, mostly like uh, former soldier types, pretty tough crowd. And uh, I say, hey, you guys, you know guys know Serio's story, right? And they're like, oh, what's discussing the uh, who we dislike more? And I was like, you know the guy that Serio thinks is saying and might be innocent that, you know, the tale? No, he's a boy. And they said, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. This is another story. There's something about Tom. And, and I said, uh, well, these are the guys that framed him. Uh, the, the guy, I don't want to ruin the story because he still might be innocent, but these are the guys that ratted him out by, and I slammed the door. And those guys, they went um, crazy. And then, you know, they started, and then I forgot that I asked, forgot to ask. And then I went, oh, excuse me, Kat, uh, can you come here for a second? And then I said, you guys, this, I'll bring them right back. And I said, where's your, uh, you know, fantasy fiction time machine? And he said, he said, uh, why, why, why would I tell you? And I said, well, you guys, hey, you know what? He said, it's just this guy, this Aristotle guy that, uh, I'm going to take this guy. He's innocent of, you know, ratting out anybody. And so I said, you know, you show me where it is, and uh, I'll tell you what, Cat, I'll let you, um, you know, I'll drop you off in uh, back wherever you're supposed to be. I said, what happened? And he said, I don't know, man. The Aristotle, he says some, and I said, okay, just don't talk anymore. Um, and he said, well, I don't want to go back to my old life. And I said, your old life or your new life? And he said, what do you mean? I said, man, you, what happened to you? I said, did only part of your brain go through the metaverse? He said, possibly. I said, listen, you know, I'll tell you what, I'll drop you off with the maiden. And if you're still buying that I'm going to do that, you know, then that's probably a sign. I'll just drop you back off wherever you live. I'll look it up on Wikipedia while we head out. And he said, um, what's, he goes, oh, yeah, I'm, yeah, that sounds great. So I took Cat Stevens and um, I zoomed him back. I think he, he, he lives in Los Angeles or someplace. I don't even know. And dropped him off, then jetted back to uh, Westeros. And then they, they had knocked Aristotle out. And then I was like, oh, what am I supposed to do with Aristotle? Because he's uh, probably not sure where he came from. And I said, um, hmm, that's a problem. And then so I did, what I did was I said, uh, so what I did was I did like a, uh, um, 
a thing inside a thing. Like I got, I got my um, oh, fantasy fiction time machine. Hard to explain, but I put it inside a cat, uh, Aristotle and Cat Stevens. And then uh, I got Aristotle. I said, well, we, we got to get back. You know, he was barely conscious. I said, you got to get back to where you came from, man. You know, let me get you back there where you're safe. And he said he punched. So I said, punch it in. And he punched a bunch of numbers and a couple, like, symbols. I don't know what the symbols were or something about. I don't know, you know, this afterworld emoticon type stuff. And so then we zoomed to something, and I closed my eyes. I got, I pushed my machine out, smashed his uh, ruer. You know, the ruer is the thing that powers it. I ripped out his um, his boltonator, and um, I think it runs on something else, a ruing a roost bolton and something. But I no more bolton, no more ruer. And then I pushed it. There was like a, there was a bubbling cauldron of lava. But I think I was like, why'd you park so close to lava? And he said, don't worry about it. And then he had just hopped on a dinosaur, and he was out. So then I headed back to Westeros, which I don't know what I was thinking doing that, but I'm back here. Uh, God's uh, uh, sweet, safe, and sound. Back here with my yo-yo. Oh, yo-yo. Yeah. Back here with my yo-yo. I've almost got to walk the dog down crone. And, you know, I'm just telling you guys that. So I'm on a tour with Sirio, probably a little bit more, maybe not. Probably not because he's gone. He left me behind. He he left me a note that said, you know, hey, uh, dummy. That's really what it says. I'm looking, working on a new show, re- reboot, after a little break. Uh, hugs and kisses, not really. Sirio. Uh, and I said, well, thanks for the, you know, all rising tide lifted all boats anyway. So, you know, I'm now a, a premier, um, you know, I've broken genres myself, Serial, because now people throw can throw stuff at me. And, you know, I'm like a, a cathartic bore of Westeros. So that's, I got that going for me. So that's... um and I got the the yo-yo. So that's it, Gads. I just like keeping you up to date. So uh, two problems. Well, I think all our problems are solved other than me. All the external problems in George R. R. Martin's universe are gone. Cat uh, Stevens is back. He has no more time privileges or meta privileges. Aristotle is, you know, with his dinosaur or whatever, whatever afterlife or you know, parallel life he's living. So, you know, what could, you know, George R. R. Martin's universe is stable. Uh, I mean, unless I like disturb the foundation, which I don't think I did. And I'm just here, you know, making sure that, you know, I'll just iron out the rest of the wrinkles probably hang here because I like it. Plus I want to see, you know, just see if I can make the maiden. Uh, possibly, but I'm going to stay out of, like, where the action is. You know, I'm going to be on the periphery, you know, using this uh, uh, momentum I've built as the uh, cathartic bore of Westeros. Uh, that's not what, that's a self-made title, though. They just call me, I forgot they call me, uh, Brussels Guts is what they're calling me in this town, but... Uh, so that's it, Gads. Thank you so much for all your um, 
you know, surprises. And, you know, as always, I'm your humble servant in servitude, praising your names, doing my best to, uh, you know, see things through. You know, make sure that, you know, right, like I said, when this whole thing started, I knew that Red Woman was burning effigies. And I knew I was, you know, messing around too much since I let Cat Steven. I forgot about the fake hound. Did I do something about him or not? So maybe that, we'll get to that, maybe, God. I don't know. I got to rack my brain. Um, and again, you know, it was just in case, God, you travel and you like Cat Stevens. I like Cat Stevens and I like Aristotle. It's just some, and I don't think there's anything wrong with either one of them. I think it was just the. You know, they were like cats out of a bag or, um, what do you call it, fish out of the sea? Is that what they say, gods? They're just flopping around their universe. That's it. I'll be uh, in touch soon. All right. Good night, gods. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. You know, I don't know where Aristotle got those boots, but I'm assuming it wasn't from you. Okay, bye.